Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. This season on SageCast, we'll be talking to current and former Pomona faculty about their life stories, work experience, and more. Today, we're delighted to talk to Tom Lee, Assistant Professor of Politics here at Pomona College. Welcome, Tom. Glad to have you with us. Thank you. Uh, Happy to be here. Um, So you've been at Pomona for about five years, or in your fifth year, I think, right? Um, Yeah. So um, let's go way back and... uh, (laughs) The way back machine. (laughs) Yeah. And um, ask you to kind of tell us about your journey, how you got here, um, uh, how you became interested in what you're doing. Okay. Um, Let's see. So I guess what I do is I, I do... Um, East Asia security issues, uh, specifically on Japanese security policy. And I look at demographics, like aging populations, declining populations, and how it affects uh, security. So that's what I do. And how I got there, I think it's like how most graduate students get there, is you do you know, research on a specific question, and it, it turns out that everybody's already answered it. <laughs> so you try to find like your <laughs> angle, right? So it might end up being demographics. But if we go way at the beginning, uh, I out of high school, I wanted to be a lobbyist. Okay. That, mm-hmm. So I always envisioned that I'd be working in the Capitol and kind of, um, you know, promoting whatever interest that, you know, my firm would uh, want me to push. And uh, when I was a, a junior, uh, I got accepted to the UCDC program. Uh, I went to UC Davis, and then I also got accepted to... Um, a study abroad program in uh, Yokohama, Japan. Mm. So I was supposed to go to Japan first and then D.C., but for some reason on scheduling, I went to D.C. first. So I got my first shot at lobbying. So I went to work for Oxfam America, and we were working on farm subsidies, mm. So which was really great. I had a, a great mentor, um, and he let me actually go with him and like lobby uh, senator. So we went into the Feinstein office, the Grassley office, saying, like, you know, we got to cut farm subsidies. And uh, we were quite successful to the point where we we're going to get people to agree to sign on to, like, a bill to cut these subsidies. It was, I think, at the time in 2000, uh, when was it? it was early 2000s. We were giving, like, $8 billion a year to, like, cotton. Um, and, uh, like, the day before we got the agreement, uh, they just like changed their minds because it turns out like the wife of one of the lead like cotton lobbyists was friends with like a senator and then they uh, had like a talk or no. something like that. I think that's what was the behind the scenes action. So that kind of kind of made me lose faith in uh, <laughs> government. So I was like, okay, I'll try the <laughs> academic track or mm-hmm. I'll just like criticize <laughs> these guys instead. Um, and then uh, mm-hmm. the next semester I went to Japan and really, that I mean, to be honest, I just went because I'd, I've never uh, left the U.S. before. Uh, it was actually the first time I went on an airplane. Uh, well, D.C. was, and then... Mm-hmm. Uh, international. And, uh, yeah, then international. And um, it was fun. You know, the, if, you know, at the time, I didn't speak any... Oh, I, I did speak some Japanese, but it was... Everything was just, like, wild. It was just, like, the rules are different here. The culture is different. Um, and so I got kind of fascinated with different places. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, the program itself wasn't very rigorous. Uh, I think um, 
at the time, I think the average amount of weekly readings was like 12 pages or something like that. So <laughs> not exactly Pomona. No, no, it wasn't Pomona. Um, so like, you know, I'm on the study abroad committee now at Pomona mm-hmm. and I tell the students, you know, you know, find rigorous programs or that's what the uh, Nicole runs like runs that office really well. And we have some of the more rigorous programs, I think, in the world, probably. But I think you learn a lot just from like being in another yeah, country. Right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, especially since I like I had never been abroad before. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was taking a class with the professor uh, and I, I went to Japan like one week later than other students because of some visa issue. Uh, so everyone enrolled in one class. Mm-hmm. It's like 60 students. And I didn't know why. And I, I picked the class on like law of the sea because I was like into politics. And I was the only student. <laughs> so there was actually like 10 weeks where it was like one professor and me. One on one. One on one. But we, but since it's Japan, it's still not done in like discussion session style. So it's still straight up like lecture style. Oh, wow. So it was just like Professor Yoshi, like standing in front of the blackboard. Did you have to raise your hand? Yeah, <laughs> I did. And then, uh, and, Pick and, me. Yeah. and then sometimes he wouldn't. No, but uh, we would, uh, I would just sit there and he would just like lecture. And, you know, it's kind of funny because, uh, uh, sometimes I was like really tired. And so I was, like, Don't fall asleep. Like fall asleep. Like, yeah. Uh, but uh, he was a. Uh, and you he, couldn't sit in the back of the class. No. Uh, yeah. So was, he was like three chairs. Like different. It was a weird kind of setup. You and, can skip class. Yeah. Epimono. Yeah. Like, you if get that happened, Yeah. Uh, I, the logical thing to do, I think, Epimono is like, if that ever happened and they didn't cancel the class, you'd probably have every class at like the Sage Hen Cafe or something right. like that, right? right? And then you just make it into a conversation and you let it evolve. But, you know, different cultures, different norms. Right. Um, uh, but the class itself was kind of boring because it's just one person talking about the law of the sea. So I asked him, um, I want to do a research paper. Mm. Uh, and I want to do it on this uh, shrine controversy. There mm-hmm. was like kind of this war shrine in Japan that was like in the headlines at the time. Uh, so he said, sure, let's just do this in addition uh, to the class. Yeah. And then so uh, he helped me find a bunch of Japanese politicians. We just went online and just got our names and just cold called them and said, we want to do some interviews. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they said yes. Oh. So I was able to, as an undergraduate, um, go into like these offices of like these elites and just like talk to them. Mm-hmm. And they were really kind. And um, the first interview was with uh, Ichita Yamamoto, who's, who's still in the government now. And he's kind of a quirky figure, like kind of conservative and but like young. And he's also like a singer-songwriter who hmm. like writes and produces albums on like politics. And he could sing pretty well. So when we got there, uh, he had like signed mm-hmm. CDs for us and he made like a big deal out of it. And so I kind of got like addicted to like independent research. Mm-hmm. And, and Japan just seemed like a very welcoming country if you're mm-hmm. a Westerner. Yeah. Uh, and I, I learned like later when I got deeper into the research why that's the case. So that was kind of like the beginning track of being interested in uh, Japan. So after I graduated, I took two years off. And then when I got into grad school, I started pursuing like the Japan research route. Um, finished grad school. Uh, I did a Fulbright. And that's when I got, um, I applied for the job here. And so I got flown in from Japan. And I don't know, I kind of was able to fake it for a couple days in order to get the <laughs> offer. Uh, and so it kind of worked out. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a, like a long way around to the kind of yeah. Yeah. answer. Yeah. Uh, no, that's great. Um, 
you mentioned a few of the uh, opportunities you had as a as an undergrad, um, and and you talk a lot about this also uh, in your social media mm-hmm. about being a first gen uh, yeah. student. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that kind of formed you as a as a student, but also as an academic? And then talk a little bit about how now you on on the as a professor. How do you is, does that affect the way that you mentor your students, especially first gen students? Uh, um, yeah, I guess I don't know if it's so like direct. Like it's not like. Um, let me see how I could explain it. So, uh, I think by being first gen, I think there's a couple like feelings that you always carry with yourself. Mm-hmm. One is a constant sense of insecurity. Yeah. That um. When things go well, it could just like go away for whatever reason, because you never have enough like capital built, either mm-hmm. financial or political or whatever. So you're always feeling like insecure. And um, also being first gen is um, your uh, the amount of space that you have for making mistakes is like much smaller than those that have like adequate resources. Right. So I so a lot of how I've seen like my career uh, develop and I'm really happy with where I'm at right now is that a lot of it, I think it's like kind of luck and having good mentors. And mm-hmm. I'll give you like a couple of examples. Like, um, I didn't know I ha- needed to take the SAT to get, to go to college. Uh, you know, I was like a, a, a decent student throughout mm-hmm. up until high school. Mm-hmm. And I just like did what was put in front of me, you yeah. know? Um, I remember there was something called like the gate program mm-hmm. or something like that. Mm-hmm. I think it's like second, third grade. And I tested, really high into it because the teachers thought like I should do it. Mm-hmm. And then when I got in, uh, I didn't accept it because I didn't understand why didn't do I need to do it. Yeah. Cause I was like, why would I leave my friends? Uh, so I just stayed. So there's these opportunities that are in front of you, but if you don't have, um, the resources, you don't really understand. Like my, uh, parents, my mom only went to school until like the third grade. Right. Mm-hmm. So high school is already kind of like something different. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so and then so I didn't know I needed to take the SAT. And the only reason why I took it uh, is because um, there was a, a girl that I wanted to take to prom. And she asked me, like, hey, Tom, are you taking the SAT? And I was she like. She what your score was. Yeah, well, we weren't even there yet. She's like, are you going to take it yet? Do you need a ride to uh, the Testing to Roland? Mm-hmm. I think it was like Roland Heights. or No, it was a, a, uh, some high school near San Gabriel. And I was just like, cool, I could hang out with her for like a day. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so that's like the only reason I took it. But if I didn't have like that random offer, mm-hmm. I wouldn't really know to like that I had to take it. Yeah. Right. So I didn't study for it and things like that. Right. So, you know, that's the only reason uh, why I did that. Right. And when I got into grad school, I remember the first two years, it was just like people were talking about like, I want to publish here or go to this conference and all these things. And I was thinking like, I don't know what a conference is. Like, yeah. uh, I don't know any of these kind of things. Yeah. And so I had like really good friends that kind of mentored and explained uh, things to me that's why i think most of my friends are a little bit older than me because mm-hmm. i just kind of gravitate towards people that uh just were in the know you know yeah. um and so like that's the kind of the first gen experience you're like there may be a ton of resources uh but you don't know how to like navigate it or contextualize it or be efficient at using it mm-hmm. um and then we live in a world where like getting into school and succeeding is like so game now right there's like mm-hmm. prep centers and all these things yeah. so you're not even just like it's an industry. Yeah, it's an industry. So you're you're really like, you, um, you have to have like a lot of good support, right? So coming from that background, I know a lot of Pomona College and a lot of universities now are doing a great job at like increasing diversity. Um, but that's like 
just one part of it, right? Mm -hmm. So what I've tried to do is like create opportunities for students and really like connect them with uh, mentors. So, mm -hmm. you know, uh, working with uh, Zane and um, um, we at the Pacific Basin Institute, we set up a permanent internship with Pacific Forum for two students mm -hmm. every year now. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have a lot of friends in the professional world, so in, in law and things like that. So I'll connect them with students and mm -hmm. have them mentor them. So that's kind of what I try to do for first-gen students is like help them understand the context mm -hmm. and, and really how hard it is to do well uh, and really kind of appreciate the mentors you have. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, you've also talked about the fact that the word, the term first-gen is misused sometimes. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, um, I've seen some people on like social media. I mean, I don't want to like uh, one thing uh, I, I try to do is that uh, I don't want to ne like never uh, diminish anyone's accomplishments, even if they come from uh, like, you know, stable or wealthy or whatever backgrounds, because like succeeding in the world is already like hard. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, so but uh, I've seen people say like, I'm a first gen uh, like PhD. That's true, but then like parents both have like masters, right? Um, so that is a huge mm -hmm. accomplishment. Um, but as first gen, or it, it's kind of diminishes like what it really means on the obstacles of being first gen. It's true you mm -hmm. are the first generation in your family to get a PhD, but there's like other obstacles by being first gen that has to do than not just being the first to do something. It's really being first yeah. gen is not really being first to do something. That's not that the most important part. It's like which is just one step above what your parents have done. Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. It's more about like uh, the all the conditions that I mentioned earlier about really not knowing uh, what's up. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's go about a little bit about your um, your academic expertise. Um, so you said that you got interested as an undergrad, uh, that you wrote a research paper out of your class of your one on one class. Yeah. yeah. Um, tell us a little how that evolved. So what um, you, you focus on East Asia and, mm -hmm. and security issues. Um, how what are the, all the topics that you that you are interested in um, and how has that developed? I mean, that's a pretty active area in, in politics. How has can you tell us a little bit about your research? Yeah. Um, so. It's definitely expanded, mm -hmm. uh, especially at Pomona, because there's like, you know, there's always a problem with um, breadth and depth for departments. I mean, politics is one of, I think, probably the medium-sized department mm -hmm. on campus. Mm -hmm. But if you think about it, it's like we have like 12 people or so. And so like Professor Engelbert has to do like all of Africa. Right. I have to do all of Asia. You know, my first year, I'm like... Uh, uh, I think there was two persons of color. It was like Professor Foster, who does American politics, and then like me. And so I get Asia. And then I think the first three theses I had to read were on Southeast Asia. And I'm Vietnamese. Uh, I speak Vietnamese, but that's not my research area. So I know it from like personal interest or reading, but this isn't like my thing. Right. So like in order to be a decent thesis advisor, I kind of had to like bone up on yeah. the literature too. Um, and then over time, because of like, just general interest in North Korea, mm -hmm. and, and I've had to move in that direction. Mm -hmm. But uh, originally, um, my uh, research question is actually like beyond East Asia because I'm an international relations scholar, uh, first and foremost. And my question is, um, how do we justify violence in international relations? 
right? That's like kind of my core question that I, I try to access through whatever research project I'm on. And I found Asia to be a useful case. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like method-driven and Japan in particular because you have a country that um, was hyper-militarized, right, the, the, with um, the colonial period mm-hmm. um, and then also the occupation of Korea and the war with the United States and, and that. And then you really have a country that is anti-militaristic, mm. right? They have a military now, but it only does like defense of the nation, uh, disaster relief. Like the vast majority of its missions are uh, like related to natural disasters and humanitarian assistance. And that's built in into the constitution, yes, right? Yes, yes, uh, exactly. So how do you get a country to go from that to that in a very mm-hmm. like limited Limited amount of time time. within the same, the the same people are still alive, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I wanted to kind of pursue that question. And then there's this this big debate about, is Japan going back to normal? Um, So my questions were always related to like, how do we define normal? Why is the use of force in international relations considered normal, right? So that's why I kind of uh, pursued the Japan case. So the dissertation Mm -hmm. was looking at Japan and is it really going back to normal? And what I decided on and with the book project is that, you know, normal is for is according to the context of that nation mm-hmm. and that time period. Mm-hmm. So I argue that Japan is, you know, modernizing its military now, but due to the aging population and declining population, it can't normalize in like the American sense, right? Like they, they, they never can recruit enough people to even join the military. So mm-hmm. how do you get big if people won't join. And there's like a long history of a peace culture now where uh, people, you know, aren't interested in that kind of warfare. So, you know, in the United States, if someone attacked your state in this country, the natural reaction is like, okay, we got to get them back to prevent them. But if that happened in Japan, they would not automatically get to that conclusion. Mm -hmm. Right. So Mm -hmm. I want to kind of determine like, why is it that people think about the use of force differently? Uh, so during uh, graduate school, I did my Fulbright in Hiroshima. And then so I did a lot of work with uh, peace activists and grassroots and elites. And then that expanded my research to nonproliferation and anti-nuclear activities. So that became like a track. And then um, just from personal interest, I became very interested in... Um, well, I, I guess the natural evolution was... Uh, since I study demographics, I have to study uh, gender. Mm-hmm. Right, like equity in the workplace and society, because um, the population decline has to do with like social engineering and the government side on how to get people to have more children. So I got really interested in like feminist uh, literature and uh, theory. So that got me interested in like the comfort woman issue in Korea. So then I then my research moved towards like Japan South Korea relations, and I have a project right now where I'm working with a couple students. So you know your research just takes you to different places as you do as you do it, because um, it gets interesting. Um, talking about the use of force, violence, um, a lot of what we hear in the news these days in the U.S. has to do with confrontations with Iran or with North Korea, um, and um, has to do with violence, has to do with um, non-symmetrical sorts of violence, mm-hmm. too. Um you said you've you've had to sort of expand your your work into areas like North Korea. Can you talk a little bit about what you've done with that and how that ties into the things we see in the news every day? Yeah. Um, so for North Korea, most of the stuff I had to do is like for Pomona College. There's been like 
We've invited uh, defectors here. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Park was the student, I think, that was hosting it yeah. a couple years ago mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. helped him out a little bit with that. And I've had, uh, I think, uh, like alumni events and also like Pomona in the cities. I think generally people are interested in North Korea. Uh, the one thing I'll say on North Korea is that I've written popular articles on it and I've constructed lectures. But um, North Korea, I think, is like the worst case to study because no one has good data. Yeah. I mean, if we're really honest about it, like mm-hmm. most people don't have access to North Korea. If so, it's a very limited window or with elites, right? So mm-hmm. if we are going to talk about North Korea, we should generally defer to people in South Korea, like uh, academics there who have better access. Mm-hmm. And in the United States, like, you know, uh, the biggest scholars are like Victor Cha, who, mm-hmm. who's at Georgetown, who... Um, you know, served on the, I think helped with the six party talks and mm. uh, Sandra Fahey, who's, um, she's not a, um, in the United States, she's at Sophia University in Japan, but she did a lot of work with um, uh, looking at like the plight of North Koreans. So there's like experts mm-hmm. that I rather defer to when it yeah. comes to predicting mm-hmm. North Korea. So my arguments on North Korea have always been that um, a lot of our our models or policies are on these presumptions that we have like very limited data on. Mm -hmm. And I find that problematic. So I've made Mm -hmm. kind of more commentary about how we have like uh, our reaction to them tends not to be um, built on solid data. So it's likely not to be like the best advice or it might be the best advice, but we have no idea. Like there's no way to check. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's always been my concern to caution our uh, overly kind of rigid views on North Korea when we really don't know that much about the country. Right. I mean, and your your work is in demographics, and we certainly don't have any way of knowing much about the demographics of, of North Korea, I would guess. Yeah, I mean, there's um, think tanks that push uh, put that out. and um, But really, like, I mean, you need to just be able to have access, yeah. uh, and we just don't. So I would always take everything with a grain of salt. I mean, a lot of stuff is done with, like, satellite imagery. I mean, I, I do believe that maybe our governments know a lot more, but a lot of that's mm-hmm. probably classified. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not a North Korea like expert. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people claim they are. Uh, and like not to knock them, they do the best that they can. But that's just like the hardest case to do. Right? Yeah. We just have mm-hmm. such limited access to them. Um, and yet we spend so much of our energy on them. So like my big push recently, uh, and I'm, I'm writing an article right now, uh, just like a short op-ed with uh, two of my students looking at East Asia and that all our energy is now on what do we do about China? Uh how do we stop North Korean nuclear weapons? Uh, and like, is Taiwan going to be a problem, right? Like, mm-hmm. should they be independent or not? And what's that going to do to the, the regional order? These are all problems of like the last century. And we've made like kind of no progress, right? We're just kind of maintaining mm-hmm. the status quo. Mm-hmm. And we don't have a clear idea of how we want to move forward. But mm-hmm. what we do know is that um, like contagion, like the coronavirus and things like that are going to be huge problems. And as and things are as it spreads, and if there's no cooperation among these countries, it, it it's, takes it's harder to fix. We know climate change is going to be a major issue around the world and in, in East Asia, and we know that uh, mass uh, migration is going to happen due to climate change, or if like the North Korean state falls, uh, and we saw from the Rohingya crisis, East Asia is not ready for that. So there's actually like yeah. tangible existential threats uh, that are going to happen sooner than later that we're not paying attention to because we're paying attention to, like, North Korea. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you were writing an op-ed with one of your students or a couple of your students. Um, that's actually you, you, a lot of – you uh, spend a lot of energy on that, on writing, making sure you're writing uh, with your students, but not only for, like, 
um, academic kind of journals, but also for more public-facing um, outlets. Tell us a little about that process and why do you think that's important? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, Daphne uh, mm-hmm. and I, we just published an article right. like yesterday. Yeah. Oh, I forgot to send it to you, so mm-hmm. we got to get that out there. Um, uh, so I, I guess about like kind of making sure students have kind of as as much on their like CV or resume mm-hmm. as possible when they get out of here. Mm-hmm. It's kind of part of it, yeah. right? So giving them opportunities. Yeah. So, uh, you know, for um, a couple of my classes, some assignments are to write an op-ed and get it published. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the Pacific Forum P- PBI uh, collaboration, the final assignment of that is to get published as okay. well. So, and, you know, to be uh, clear, like op-eds aren't as valuable, right, as uh, peer-reviewed articles right. because like, at least for academic points, not, but at least you're engaging with like an audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I, I spent, I think a year and a half writing a peer reviewed article and I, I checked like the data on it. I think it's been like downloaded like 40 times or something like that. Yeah. And I was like, ah, oh, that's a lot of work for so little impact. Whereas yeah. like you could write an op-ed and it gets into like, uh, I don't know, uh, the monkey cage and you'll know at least you'll get like a couple thousand hits in a day or something. At like least, least yeah. so people mm-hmm. are reading it. And so uh, why I like working with the students and I kind of want them to write is one is get comfortable putting your ideas out there. Mm-hmm. So you have to get comfortable defending it mm-hmm. or be comfortable being criticized. Uh, secondly, is that uh, op-eds are useful in that they're short. So it's really easy to just kind of write, 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 write. But mm-hmm. getting your ideas like in a short space um, is difficult. Uh, yeah. And this is where you and uh, Mark have been really helpful with me. You know, the mm-hmm. first op-eds I were sending you when I just got here was like 2,000 words. And you guys were like, what is going on? And I was like, 2,000 words, that's not 12,000. Like, yeah. You're welcome. And you're like, oh, get that. <laughs> and you would like, say like, make it 600. Yeah, get it 600. <laughs> and so it's a useful skill. Yeah. And I think they get mm-hmm. really into it. Like uh, once they see their name published, they could sure. send that. It's a very tangible result that doesn't take that much time where they could send it to their parents or their friends. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, look, I did something. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think it's kind of a really useful tool in like many ways to get them interested in like mm-hmm. academia. You also share your own projects uh, on Twitter. Um, so using Twitter is even more contracted. Um, it, can you talk to us about the use of Twitter in academia? Uh, it's Is that something that's growing? Uh, I'm not sure, actually, because... I joined Twitter, or I I joined Twitter like ten years ago, and I hadn't I didn't tweet until I got to Pomona. So for like five years, I didn't I didn't even log in, uh, and I only started doing that because I started working with uh, Patty and Mark, and they're just like, <laughs> you guys should put it out there. So I'm actually like quite bad at Twitter. So so uh, we pushed you there. Yeah, so, okay. definitely. Uh, I'm more welcome. of like a Facebook person where I, I, I have diatribes. I'm sorry. You're welcome. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, no, but it, Twitter actually has connected me with like a lot of different scholars. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think journalists use it a lot. It's almost like mm-hmm. that's like kind of the only way they communicate now. Um, yeah. I don't like Twitter because I just – the reason why I didn't use Twitter for so long was I didn't know who was talking to who. Yeah. Like when it says like at something, I wasn't sure like, so does that mean only they can see it or, and I'm still not sure, but then, uh, so, and I'll have like an idea that I want to like test and it's like 20 sentences long. I'd rather just have a paragraph, but you have to kind of do that. One of, one of five. One yeah. Two, two of five, three of five. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, um, and I don't have that many interesting things to say or not like witty in the sense like, so I, I don't like when I write, it's just like, it's like. Too much pressure. Uh, you're gonna be like quite performative on Twitter. Uh, what I do find I like a lot about Twitter is like there are some like really good threads 
uh, done by uh, scholars uh, where uh, I think it's uh, uh, where they'll like just make an argument and they'll link like 20 articles mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then other scholars will like jump in and then you'll see a lot of stuff or in my syllabi I've been trying to increase uh, diversity in my syllabi so mm -hmm. in all my syllabi I, I post like the demographics of like the authors uh, and like it's really hard to like kind of get some parity and that's not 50-50 just like kind of parity that represents the evolution of the discipline mm. right uh, which means like by nature it's going to be more men than women because really in a political science um, like the, the foundational stuff is mostly men yeah right but you know you don't know what you don't know and so like by being on twitter there's uh, like the hashtag women also know mm -hmm. and uh and then uh, our, uh and then uh, i think persons of colors also know and so i could like ask these like scholars who are like better versed in this disciplines mm -hmm. and then they'll just like give a ton of like suggestions so i found it to be a really valuable tool mm -hmm. in like data collection yeah but when it comes to like producing stuff if you actually look at my twitter it's like <laughs> no one's i have very few followers because it's just like mm -hmm. you know it's just be like uh the lakers win a game or something and i'll just be like <laughs> like go lakers like like no one's gonna like log in and be like oh like that's a that's a pretty hot take you know like i don't have like hot takes so that so that's kind of my relationship with twitter so, so that's a good transition to one of the courses you're teaching this mm -hmm. spring sports and politics can yeah. you can you tell us a little bit about the, what you had in mind for that course and and then we can talk a little bit about um basketball and the lakers yeah sure so um i've always wanted to do a sports and politics class from mm -hmm. like my personal interest mm -hmm. uh and i think uh and um you know i do east asia first and uh, my original kind of like inspiration for it was when the um south korea played japan in the World Baseball Classic in the mm. finals in uh, Dodger Stadium. Mm -hmm. And it was like a heated match. And if you're if you're versed in the literature there, you're like, of course it would be. Like there's mm -hmm. this colonial history and there's this like rivalry. Uh, but if you looked at like the media discussion of it, like in LA Times mm -hmm. or whatever, LA Times got it actually. Uh, but like other outlets, they would be like, where'd all these Asians come from? Like, why are they all in Dodger Stadium? And like, why are they so mad? It's just like a baseball game. Uh, and it's like, because it's not just baseball, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and in the United States, baseball is not just baseball. It's a pastime yeah. and, and all those words have meanings. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I want to do a class where, you know, for one of our classes, wouldn't it be awesome where like week 10 or so, which probably where it would fall, where during a where baseball classic, we could just take a class and watch a game. Mm -hmm. Right. And then like kind of see politics in action. Mm -hmm. So that was like kind of the original inspiration. Mm -hmm. And then so I, I but I have like a lot of responsibilities to the department, you know, intro to IR and, and East Asia classes, my uh, security class. But eventually I was just like, you know, what, I'm just going to do it. And so this semester I was finally able to put together a syllabus um, where we it's an analyzing difference and speaking intensive one, too. You know, I used to teach debate for like 10 years. So <gasps> I, I, I try to do as much of that as I can. And, um, you know, we look at how sports interact with, like, gender, class, race, colonialism, uh, health. We look at prize fighting. I'm a mm -hmm. huge MMA fan. And so, like, it was kind of like a personal passion to talk about the stuff I like to talk about. <laughs> but at the same time, it, like, easily translates to politics and international yeah. relations. Yeah. It's just, like, uh, sports are political and, and and we apply our politics to our athletes. Yeah. Right. I mean, do you, do you look at the Olympics? I, I yeah. mean, I, I've always thought, you know, the Olympics supposedly sort of bring us together, but you never see people so jingoistic as they yeah. are when they're watching their own team play against some other team. <laughs> 
Yeah. That's true. It's just like for two weeks, everyone's like a fencing expert. Right. And it's just like, I care so much. And then the next day they don't. Um, and winter, it's, it's what is the one? The, yeah. Curling. Curling. Curling, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, um, you know, like people are weird, right? We're kind of irrational in some ways. It's just, you know, we care about like a person who's like probably like super wealthy and their ability to throw a ball into a, a rim that's like 10 feet in the air in the parameters of like an 80 foot court. Like that's just like kind of like arbitrary, right? Yeah. Um, but we do, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of fun to explore. It kind of, so like, like the, the point of the class is to like, to question a lot of our assumptions, right? That sports is all about merit. Well, it's not, yeah. right? Some of it's like genetic lottery. Some of it's, there's like, kind of uh, race and class issues built into it and it's kind of question like our loyalties like why do we care so much about something like yeah you care about your country but like you didn't choose the country you were born in right and you don't uh, choose your baseball team yeah either, you don't choose right? your baseball <laughs> team either. yeah it's like yeah, it chooses you when yeah you're uh so all that and yet we like put a lot of money energy and heartache into it so it's kind of fun to explore uh like once we realize everything's like absurd then you're kind of free to kind of do what you want right <laughs> So along those lines of um, emotion and how much investment we put into our teams, um, let's talk a little bit about, yeah, you wrote recently about um, Kobe Bryant's death and yeah. um, his impact that he had. And talk a little bit about how that hit you. You grew up in Southern California, correct? Yeah. So I'm originally from Grand Rapids, Michigan. And okay. then we came here uh, like in first grade. Okay. So, so yeah. let's talk a little about that, how... Um, why has that um, had such an impact on you and, and um, California and a lot of um, basketball fans? Yeah, so the, the Kobe thing hit me, like, way harder than I thought. Like, mm -hmm. I've uh, I've been sick, like, the last couple of days. Yeah. And, like, so I'm already, like, kind of bummed. And then um, the Kobe thing really hurt because I've been really just watching, like, clips, mm -hmm. like, all day the mm -hmm. last. And just, like, Googling and just, like, just reading as many articles, like, trying to find some control on like a situation that's obviously the, where there was no control, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. um, and like, uh, I guess a couple things for like, yeah, it really, it really bugged, it really bummed me out. Um, so I guess for Kobe was, first, if you're a Laker fan, right? So mm -hmm. I grew up with like Chick Hearn and the, and the the last days of like Magic, right? Uh, when uh, Magic made his like short comeback as well, and then he coached for a while. So I was like kind of really into the Lakers from the beginning. Uh, and then the Lakers had that really great run with Shaq and Kobe right. um and the thing about Kobe that was always like fun was and also easy to hate on mm -hmm. like I would go back from like you're a petulant player and you're killing us here <laughs> to like how many like game winners that we got out of him like these kind of he was like a very like um cinematic player in some ways right like he had like mm -hmm. so many kind of moments where like just the buzzer beaters mm -hmm. um and so, like, he was a very fun player to watch. Uh, and he was with the team for, like, 20 years. So it's only really him and Tim Duncan in the modern era that stuck with the team. And Tim Duncan's also one of my favorite players for, like, the opposite reasons of Kobe, right? Um, but when, like, Kobe died, I think, you know, he did a really good job at marketing the idea that, like, he was, like, indestructible, right? That he was always going to yeah. be, like, this presence in your life, Um that, you know, he gets injured, but he'll play through the injury. His right. finger's, like, dangling off his hand. He'll still play. <laughs> and so, like, his death was, like, quick and arbitrary, right? It was just, like, you know, he was just, like, hanging out with his kid. And then they were going to a game. And then, like, it was an accident, 
right? And then, like, all of a sudden, like, he's gone. And I get, like, a, a message from my brother. It's like, Kobe's dead. I was like, oh, my God. Um, so that was kind of part of the shocking part of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, I think for me as a political scientist, I was always interested in Kobe more so for his, like, post-NBA career. He's, like, a really weird player, right? He grew up in Italy. He has, like, no friends. Uh, he doesn't have – he didn't grow up in the AAU kind of circuit. That's why the NBA has changed right now, right? Like, LeBron, Wade, all these guys are friends because they kind of uh, – I grew up playing with history. each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, whereas like Kobe was kind of developed independently. And so um, he has a, a ton of money and he's in the investing and he's producing. And so he was going to like be like this kind of media and like uh, kind of empire. He's like a young, black, intelligent guy. And like those guys can do a lot of good stuff. So I was just excited. Like, what is he going to do? He's going to make mistakes and he's going to be controversial, but he's going to have an impact. So I just wanted to follow that part of his career. Mm -hmm. And so when he was retired, I was just like looking forward to reading those developments. And so like then he he dies and then you just realize like he's not going to be with me along the way. You know what I mean? So I, I was always expected that him to be kind of in the background. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of jarring because like, like an athlete like him um, kind of a lot it's like a signpost where you could like kind of kind of know where you are in life in some mm. ways as well right so that was kind of quite upsetting and i think for los angeles like you know he has fans across demographics yeah like asians love him latinos love him uh you know african-americans love him like everybody loves kobe like whites love him everyone does uh because of like the performance dimension mm -hmm. but also like you know he's a spectacle and we and that's why we like sports um and so that was like one dimension of it. Um, mm -hmm. And then it was also like hard too because like, you know, I was expressing my, uh, my kind of my grief on like social media. But at the same time, like he has like the Colorado uh, uh, sexual assault case and things like that too. So you don't want to like lionize the guy uh, and you kind of want to point to like, you know, recognize how like this kind of grieving process can like affect other individuals negatively yeah. as well. Yeah. And it's really hard to like, find this the right time for it because mm -hmm. it's kind of weird to there's like this big debate now online about like like what do you date like kobe his daughter and like seven others died also kobe had this like 2003 case right that's like a weird headline but like how do you like Reconcile. talk about it right mm -hmm. it, it just yeah. means like in our society we're still like figuring out like how do we talk about death how do we talk about uh, sexual assault, all these things. We don't actually have like norms and rules yet. Yeah. And it's not just yeah. us. It's it's even the sort of arbiters of those things, the media, uh, yeah. the the Washington Post uh, punished a uh, reporter for, yeah, for like tweeting, something, for tweeting right. something about that in the midst of all the, 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 the anguish. And yeah. uh, then there's been a back sort of a backlash from journalists about that mm -hmm. because, you know, it's why are you why are you punishing her for this? So yeah. it's, a, it's a seems to be something that we're struggling with as a whole as a whole country. Yeah, so like you know, sports are like political, right? You yeah. can't escape it, and even in death, the politics are applied onto the athlete. Yeah, right. Yeah. Kobe's not here to litigate it, um, but we'll litigate it for him, right? Uh, and so it's interesting, and and um, it's unavoidable. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like, almost like if you're grieving for Kobe, you kind of don't have a choice. Because either, like, you really cared for him or you're upset that people really care for him. Right. Right. So, <laughs> which is fine. Those are, like, natural reactions. Mm -hmm. And it just means we're going to be talking about it, right? Um, but, you know, it is a loss. Like, it's just, uh, and, like, you know, all the other victims, too. Like, you know, we're, we're focused on one player, but 
you know, we have like a baseball coach from Orange County who's like a local legend. And then we have a bunch of kids who can't even pursue their uh, their dreams. And like the whole thing is just, it's just sad, right? So mm-hmm. like at the most basic level, I was just really bummed about it. And it's going to take me a while to just like, like I wake up every morning and just be like, it's just weird that Kobe is not, not in the world. Mm-hmm. To me, it's just kind of weird. Yeah. Let's shift a little on on what's next for your research. Well, you mentioned a book, but I don't know if you've told us about what it is, uh, what it's about, and what's what are you pursuing next for your research? Yeah, so the book is on the book title is um, Japan's Aging Peace, um, competing securities in modern Japan or comp- competing militarisms. I don't have a final title yet. Um, the manuscript's complete. Uh, I sent it out for review and. Uh, Three presses were interested in it. Yes. Um, and like a fourth one actually just contacted me recently and they want to take a look, but uh, which is kind of cool. I did not expect mm-hmm. that. And I actually haven't like taken my argument and like tested it in the real world really. Mm-hmm. And so I got some reviews back and they have been positive. And so hopefully I'll be able to like just, you know, pick that before I come up for tenure, right? Uh, That's helpful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If this place gets rude of me, no, uh, I'll take my talents as well. Uh, but uh, so that's like the kind of most immediate thing yeah. I need to get out of the way. Uh-huh. Uh, and then I have like five projects I'm working on right now. And uh, two articles I'm working with uh, my friend, uh, Neil Chattervedi and um, Cal Poly Pomona. Mm-hmm. And one of them's on... Um, like people's responses to terrorist attacks in the West and the non-West, mm. and then their support for like the use of force and torture. So like, and that the motivation for that was, you know, when there was terrorist attacks in France, like everybody changed their Facebook photo right. and they were like, I went there and things uh-huh. like that. But when there's one in like, in like, um, you know, the flag is in my mind. It's like a pine tree. It's um, Lebanon. Uh, Lebanon. Yeah, I don't know why it's uh, off the. I couldn't uh, place it. But uh, when there's a terrorist attack there, like nobody says a thing. Uh, except my Lebanese friends, right? Because they have like, an yeah. intimate connection. Right. So, and you know, we're trying to develop like an argument on there, and then another article on like no hypotheses, which is kind of boring. You don't want to hear about that. Uh, <laughs> I have an article on uh, Shin on Godzilla. So I've been working on how like different countries interpret Godzilla differently, huh. and for Americans, mm-hmm. we apply our kind of militaristic mindset onto that film, whereas the Japanese have a different like interpretation <laughs> of that film, and it kind of goes back to my general theory of like how do we justify violence and how do we see the world, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the big project now is um, funded by the Korea Foundation. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a really difficult project. So this one's going to take a, a while to do because uh, I have to get familiar with the literature too. But I'm con- I'm comparing uh, Reconstruction Era America, so post-Civil War, with post-World War II East Asia. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to develop mm-hmm. a theory of like apology and reconciliation on what happens if you don't solve the crisis immediately and effectively right after the war right uh Mm -hmm. and then you let it linger for like decades Mm -hmm. and so i use the analogy of debt and interest so like if you think about the the original sin is like debt right Mm -hmm. Uh, in the united states it would be like slavery right and in east asia it would be japanese colonialism and things like that and the thing about debt is like if you don't pay it right away completely there's interest right Mm -hmm. so the united Mm -hmm. states like the, the slaves were freed, but then, like, the slave owners weren't really punished, right? They, they weren't, like, there was, like, no true tribunals and things like that. Like, the laws at the time weren't designed in that way. Mm-hmm, so that's right. just, like, a fact of, like, history, not so much something else. But then over time, that, like, 
that becomes like Jim Crow and that becomes like other right. things, right? Right. And that's like the interest. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so we've done things to try to rectify it, like, you know, uh, civil rights acts and uh, voting rights acts and things like that. But that's really paying off the interest, not paying off the debt, yeah. right? So how do we get... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, I'm just saying that's interesting. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Yeah, that's no, okay. So how do we get to like 2020 where we still have like Black Lives Matter and these movements that are like are tied to the original sin, but really very different, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? So that means like the tools that you use have to be different, right? Mm -hmm. In East Asia, same thing was that Japan has like apologized and paid off uh, with agreements and things like that. But there are like some issues that weren't fully settled. And so that's how I see it as possible for the the victim side to feel that they've never been properly compensated mm -hmm. and for the former aggressor side to feel that they've apologized too much. Mm -hmm. And both mm -hmm. things can be true. And that's the tragedy, right? Where one side feels like they've made a lot of positive gestures and the other side still feels like it's not enough. It's because like student debt traps, like you could constantly pay and still be stuck. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like what I'm developing. And so I am on a, uh, in this project, I have a couple students working with me, um, Michelle Tunger, uh, Lucy Gold, uh, Daphne Yang, and uh, I'm trying to get another grant to get a couple more students. Uh, and they're helping me like find polling data and just like get familiar with the literature. And mm -hmm. we're producing, uh, we're hoping to produce kind of some op-eds out of it, a an academic article, uh, um, like a policy paper. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and two presses actually have already contacted me on it and asked, like, I think we'll turn this into a book one day or something. And I, I'm not like, not even close to that, but that'd be kind of a cool kind of end project. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's how I'll make fool or something like that. But uh, so this is like really early uh, and I'm kind of really stressed about it just because it's a it's like a hard it's a hard topic mm -hmm. and I'm not quite sure how I'm going to tackle it yet. Yeah. That's so on that note, we're going to wrap this up. Um We've been talking to Tom Lee, uh, Assistant Professor of Politics. Um, thanks, Tom. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Tom. That was awesome. And to all who have stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Until next time.